This is the Oasis Church Podcast. We're located in Athens, Ohio, and we use this podcast feed to primarily post the messages from our Sunday morning church gatherings. If you enjoy this message or if you'd like to know more about Oasis Church, please reach out to us at oasisathens at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you, and we hope that you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. Well, we're in 1 John chapter 4, and we've been studying the, uh, this letter of John. If you have been with us, uh, we've, we've been here for about five weeks now. And before we go into 1 John 4, I want to begin at the very end of 1 John 3, and I just want to read that last verse in chapter 3 because it's it's something that we need to get as he transitions into the next chapter, which John didn't know he was writing chapters and verses. He just thought he was writing a letter, and we later came along and added the chapters and verses. But this is what the last verse in chapter 3 says. It says this, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. Okay? Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. Okay. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. It seems like he's saying two different things there, doesn't it? Because in the first clause of this verse, he says, in the sentence, he says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. Okay, so that's how we know that we're abiding in God as we're keeping his commandments. But then he says in the next sentence, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So which is it? Is it keeping commandments or is it living by the spirit that he's given us? Well, we're going to talk about that for a little bit. You ever consider when we talk about one part of our Bible being the Old Testament, so like this part of it being the Old Testament, the the, the majority of, of, the, of the beginning of these books, these 66 books being the Old Testament and the other part being the New Testament, do you really know and consider what the distinction is between these two Testaments, what is represented in what we know as Old Testament and New Testament. The idea of testament is, it can also be translated with the word covenant. And and I think it's good for us to think of it in terms of covenant because we get a, a better understanding of the meaning of what is taking place uh, when, we, when we talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament. So what we're really saying is Old Covenant, New Covenant. Now consider this. You can't have a new covenant until the old covenant is fulfilled. Like we can't just start a new covenant while the old covenant is still happening. For example, your marriage is a covenant. And while you are married in that covenant, you can't just start another one, right? I mean, there, there, there's something has to happen to end that covenant. And what do we say in our vows? By death do we part. And so this old covenant has been replaced by a new covenant. And that's what we're acknowledging when we say Old Testament, Old Covenant, and New Testament, New Covenant, that something has taken place between these two covenants to fulfill the old one and give us a new. So what is the old covenant? Well, the old covenant, the Old Testament is, is the law, right? It's some 600 plus commandments. And the question that we have then, obviously, is, well, who fulfilled that? Who fulfilled all 613 commandments that we're supposed to fulfill perfectly in the Old Testament? Well, the person who fulfilled that is Jesus. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says this, that he, that he came not to abolish the law, not to say, you know, we're doing away with it, but he came to fulfill it. Jesus came to fulfill the law. So when you study the purpose of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the law that God established, the purpose of the law, the Old Covenant law, was not to save you. It can't do it. It wasn't to free you from your sins. To look at Jesus in today's new covenant, to look at Jesus and to say that he isn't sufficient that we need to add a bunch of laws or rules in order to be approved by God, in order to be able to stand before God approved, is to actually apply something to us that was never intended to free us. In fact, if you look at the books that Paul wrote, particularly Romans and Galatians, Paul lays this out very clearly because of the conflict of seeing Jewish Christians. I mean, you know, we're talking about coming you know, off of hundreds of years, of, of you know, thousands of years of Jewish tradition and Jewish Christian, Christians being so used to what they're supposed to be doing under the Old Testament covenant, you see Paul helping them to, to be free from that under the new covenant. Because what was happening is you see Jewish Christians trying to tell Gentile Christians, hey, you need to do these things. You need to be circumcised. You need to insert these issues of the law into your living. Or even some Jewish Christians were believing that they needed to, to continue to hold on to the Old Testament law. Listen to some of the things that Paul says to, to those people. For example, in, in, in his letters, in Romans chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 19 and 20 in Romans chapter 3. You don't have to go unless you, I mean, unless you, you're pretty quick over there. You, you don't have to. I'll read it. Let's just everybody listen. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. All right, now listen to this. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable before God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So no human being will look right to God, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So there is the purpose of the law. Listen to what he says about the law in Romans 4, verse 15. He says, for the law brings wrath. For the law brings wrath. So what Paul is saying is that the law doesn't free you. The only thing that religious law does is condemn you. What religion does is tell you when you failed. That's what religion does. That's what religion ends up doing. Law does, because religion is, is focused on law. Law does that. When you go out this afternoon, for example, if you go out and, you're, and you drive too fast, all right, cops are going to pull you over, not to tell you that you're really great at, break, at, at obeying the law, right? You don't get pulled over. Have any of you ever been pulled over and have a cop come to your window of your car and say, I just wanted to pull you over to tell you that you're doing a really good job of obeying the speed limit. Never have ever heard of anything like that happening. All right, Jordan Hutton, if you ever do that, let us know. That would be pretty awesome to hear. But that never happens, right? Why do cops pull you over? They, tell you, they pull you over because you've broken the law. And that's what laws do. Laws work to tell you when you break them. They don't free you. They condemn you. That's what a law does. It condemns you. And to apply any law or any additional rule to what Jesus says and what Jesus has done for you is to say that Jesus is insufficient and it's also adding condemnation onto yourself that, that you, don't, you don't deserve to have. 
So what Paul is acknowledging here is that the purpose of the old covenant law isn't about freedom, but it's about condemnation. So in addition, in the book of Galatians, so in, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, he says this. So then the law, so the reason the law was given was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. What, so what makes us righteous then? It's, it's not living by the law. It's, it's faith. That's what, that's what he's saying. So who's that faith in? Well, John told us, you know, we talked about this last week, belief in Jesus and the name of what Christ has done for you. Praise the name of the Lord our God. We, we know that we, 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 that's where we put our faith. But Paul says this to finish this verse. Now that faith has come. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under what? The guardian, which is the law. So you look at the Old Testament. The purpose of the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant, is not to, to, to free you, but to condemn you. And it's to show us, as Galatians 3 says, it's to show us our need for Jesus, our need for faith in Jesus. It's to help us to recognize that as we look at this law, I mean, you, you, the, the law is, is held up to you like a mirror to your life. And you're like, man, I keep messing up. I need something to really rescue me because I, I just keep messing up. What's going to rescue me? What, and that's the purpose of the law, to show you that, to re help you realize that. So that you recognize in the law, I feel condemned. I'm not perfect. What can I do? Well, now he's saying the answer comes by faith. You're no longer under the guardian, the law, but now rest assured in Jesus. So you see the, the sufficiency of Christ in, in this being proclaimed, this message of the gospel of Christ being proclaimed through what the law intended. It's not, you know, the law was not intended to show you freedom, but the law was intended to show you your need for Jesus. So knowing that we're condemned, Jesus comes and he looks at the law. He looks at the law, the old covenant, and he realizes, look, we're, these people aren't perfect, but he is perfect. And he comes not to abolish the old covenant because God gave that covenant for a purpose, but rather to fulfill it and all of its demands by going to the cross and in his perfection, taking on the punishment upon himself of our sins, Jesus came to fulfill that law. I'll, I'll give you one more place where it talks about the law and, and, and compares it to the new covenant. The book of Hebrews, the entire book is written to explain this to Hebrew people. And so the writer of Hebrews says in, uh, in chapter 8, verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, so he's speaking of the new covenant, it's acknowledging now that Jesus has brought in a new covenant here, okay? So he says, he makes the first one obsolete. He, Jesus, makes the first one obsolete. And it says, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Jesus obliterated it. That's what he did when he, when he fulfilled it. That, in fact, that word vanish away can be translated as obliterated. So he obliterated the Old Testament law in terms of us needing to fulfill it. We, did, we can't fulfill it. And, and so he did it. So that's why we don't obey the old covenant today. I mean, I don't wake up in the morning and say, well, how can I obey 613 laws? I mean, 
There may be things that I do throughout the day that reflect the old covenant, like I, I haven't murdered anyone. That's good, right? It's still good to keep those 10 commandments, and we should. But that's but it's not because we wake up in the morning and we want to reflect the old covenant. It's because sometimes the old covenant aligns with Christ and the new covenant that he established. In the new covenant, remember, what's it about? What's it about? What do we do now if, if we don't obey the Old Testament law, what's the new covenant about? So what's the second half of that sentence, the last verse in 1 John 3 say? Do I mean, do we just live however we want? And pe people worry about that, right? When we when we think about, well, we, we live, we have the spirit of Christ. We just, we, we don't, we don't have to obey the Old Testament law. We, we live the way we want. Well, is that really what it's about? What are you going to do if there's no law? What, if, what are you going to do if no one sets up any rules for you and how to live? And if anyone, no one gives you a list, and says, obey all of these and do all of these and don't do all of those. Do you just, does that mean you just wake up and do whatever you want? Of course not. Paul says that. He makes that argument in Romans. He says, what shall we do now? Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? And he says, may it never be. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, he says, you've been brought, bought with a price. The value of Jesus has been given to you, has been given for you. So you've been bought with a price. So glorify God with what? With your body, with your life. Jesus has pursued you. Jesus wants to know you. Jesus wants to live through you. So what does that mean? And what does it look like? What do we do then in the new covenant? John said it for us in John 3, verse 23. This is his commandment, his new covenant commandment. What's he say? We believe in Jesus. And the new covenant then frees us from the wrath of God when we believe in Jesus. And so we're walking in Christ, we're believing in Jesus, we're hoping in Jesus. And then he tells us how to respond to that belief, which is what we talked about last week. What does that belief look like? It looks like this, loving one another. It looks like loving one another. So how are we able to do this? How can you do that? I mean, because some people are unlovely. Some people are just quite frankly unlovable, right? How do we do it then? And he tells us in that last verse, by the spirit whom he has given us. That's how we know that God abides in us. So as a Christian, I don't wake up each day trying to figure out how to follow religious law, but rather what the New Testament says is now under the new covenant, God promises us his spirit. So the command that he tells to believers now is walk by the spirit. He doesn't say wake up and obey. He said obey the old law, wake up and obey the spirit who is within you. Here's what you're going to do. Walk and live by the spirit of Christ. And this idea of walking by the Spirit literally means to just be surrendered to how the Spirit of God wants to move in your life. Surrender to this life that the King, King Jesus, who has pursued you, he is a king, which means he has a kingdom, and you belong to him as a citizen, and now you represent this king as his ambassador every single day, wherever you go, whoever you talk to, whoever you interact with. And he says, surrender your life before this king and walk in his Spirit of, and, and in the spirit of what this king has sent you to do by the Holy Spirit who is indwelling you, walk in the spirit. If you ever want to know what this means, what it looks like to walk in the spirit, one good place to go is Galatians chapter five, where Paul that in that entire chapter talks about how to live by the spirit. Paul says, walk in the spirit in verse 16, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. And then down in verse 18, he says, if you're led by the spirit, you are not under the law. What does that mean? It means this. I wake up every morning loving God. And I don't mean God just arbitrarily, but specifically. 
Jesus showed us how to be specific, love Jesus, be in pursuit of the heart of Jesus, his heart, having my heart connected to his heart. And then I'll learn to share what his heart looks like in this world, which is to love people. I'm not governed by law in doing that. I'm walking in the spirit every day. And that means it might look a little different every day, but there's a way to know whether or not we're walking truly in his spirit. And that's where John is going in chapter four. John recognizes that in this message of the simplicity of what Jesus has established and the freedom of what Christ gives to us in giving us his spirit and saying, I'm no longer going to give you a list of rules to live by, but I'm giving you my spirit. He understands that people will always come along and pervert the teaching of Christ. And you can see that in the life of Paul, as he ministers in the New Testament. You can see it also in the, in the letters of Peter, in the things that he says. And you can see it now in the letter of John that we're studying. And we know that because he follows up chapter 3 with these next words in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 1. This is where we're going to be for the rest of our time. Beloved. And he's talking about the body of Christ, talking to us as, as the church. Beloved, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So test the spirits. That's what we're talking about. I know it sounds a little freaky, right? Well, like if you just say that, just, just, just test the spirits, right? But think about this for a minute. So we, we think, we, I mean, in terms of talking about, you know, the Holy Spirit, who is a real person who lives in you and talking about we have, we all have a human spirit and, and talk about spiritual forces that are out there. Some are dark, some are light and we can be influenced by both. It's all kind of freaky to think about, isn't it? I mean, it seems like fairy tale stuff in some ways, uh, but why is it so important to consider this? And why does John say this to test the spirits? John says, test the spirits. So just let's ask ourselves this question. Why is it so important to test the spirits? I mean, often when we think about the spirits, like when you think about Satan, for example, in our minds, we tend to think about Satan in a particular way, right? John chapter 10, verse 10 says that the thief, he comes like a thief, and the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And that sounds like Satan. I mean, that's how, that's how we talk. That's how I talk about Satan a lot, is that his purpose in your life is to steal and kill and destroy. But then, then John juxtaposes that statement with Jesus, and he says, Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. And so if you were to think about, okay, what's the kingdom of darkness like? And what are the spirit, what's the spirit of darkness like? What's it about? It's easy to think about it in terms of steal, kill, and destroy, right? What's Jesus about? Life abundant. So when we think in terms of Satan, we tend to think this way and we picture him in this way. Like, I don't want darkness. I don't want evil. I don't want steal, kill, and destroy. And so you think about steal, kill, and destroy, and it becomes you know, easy to say, well, yeah, I'm going to run from that. I don't want that, right? And so it, it makes it, if that's the only way we think about what Satan looks like and the way he works, then it's easy to avoid him. But think about this for a minute. Satan shows up in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. And I do think it's true that Satan's entire purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. Spiritual forces of darkness of any kind want to steal, kill, and destroy. But Satan shows up in the Garden of Eden, and, and if you know the story of the Garden of Eden, they eat a piece of fruit, and from that point on, 
all of the destruction, all of the curse of what we see in sin and in this world was born because they disobeyed God. But when Satan shows up, did he look to them like, I'm here to steal, kill, and destroy, <laughs> seek and destroy Metallica, right? That's not what he's, that's not what he's, that's not what he, he didn't show up with Metallica playing in the background, seek and destroy. How did he present himself? I mean, who's really going to believe that, right? Well, they, they'd freak out. They'd run from him. But he, he presents himself a little differently. He, he asks them a question. He asks them a very simple question, right? When Satan showed up in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve, he didn't come to them saying, steal, kill, and destroy. He said this, surely God didn't say to not eat of that tree, right? I mean, there's a reason why. I mean, he knows that you'll be like him. I mean, so surely he didn't really mean that. He didn't come to them with a steal, kill, and destroy look. All he did when he came to them was this. He twisted the truth. Yeah, it was true that if they ate of the, true, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they would their eyes would be opened and they would understand good and evil. They would see it. But God still said, don't eat it. Let me take care of you. In this perfection of this garden that I've created, let me take care of you. And Satan said, nah, you can eat that. In fact, when you eat that, you'll be like God. Don't you want to be like God? And he twists the truth because Satan knows that if he can get you to buy into a lie, your own destruction will take place. He doesn't have to come to you, steal, kill, and destroy. He can come to you and deceive you, and then you'll destroy yourself. And that's why John says to test the spirits because spirits don't come with horns and bells and whistles and a red tail. They come under the deception of something that might look good to us, but isn't godly. I mean, it's, it's like old covenant law. Old covenant law, for example, can look really good. I mean, there's a lot of good things that God tells people to do and to not do, but you know what it completely does? It undermines the sufficiency of Jesus in your life to choose to live by the law instead of by Christ. While it might look good, people might say, oh, wow, that's a good person. Look at all the good stuff they do. Wow, they really keep all the rules. That, it, what happens, that's what's so confusing about people is they assume that living a good life is what saves you. Doing all the right things is what saves you. And that is not what saves you. Under the new covenant, it is Christ and Christ alone and faith in him that saves you. So while it may look good, it still leads the soul to destruction because the law will never free your heart. The only one who can do that is Jesus and therefore test the spirits. Probably a more accurate way of looking at Satan is in Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28. Ezekiel describes Satan like this. He's talking about the Garden of, of Eden um, and how Eve would have probably seen him. And Ezekiel, he says, you are the signet of perfection, talking about Satan. Like you, you look appealing. And he says this, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. So he hid under the beauty of the garden. Does that sound like pitchfork and red tail and horns? It doesn't. And even in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 11, 4, Paul says, Satan disguises himself. How? as an angel of light. So what John is saying to us when he says, test the spirit, is the deception of spirits is that the, is, is it can be 
that very spiritual feeling that you get sometimes. It can feel good and still not be of God. Consider that. Something can feel good and still not be of God. It can look good, but still completely hate God. Satan has no problem with good. The problem Satan has is with God. I mean, something can appear good, but not be of God. Even if you read, like, if you read the mission statement of the, sat the satanic temple, and I actually looked this up today, this morning I did. The mission statement of the satanic temple says this, that it is to encourage benevolence and empathy. That sounds good. Reject tyrannical authority. I can, I, can do, I can get down with that. Advocate practical common sense. Oppose injustice and undertake noble pursuits. You can go to the website, satanictemple.com. It's on the very front page. That's what it says. Sounds good, doesn't it? And, that's, and the reason why it sounds good is this. It's because they don't have any problem with good. The problem they have is with God. I should say it like this. They don't have any problem with what the world views as good. But the scripture tells us that no one is good, not even one. That there is only one who is good, and that is God. God defines good. The problem is with God because Satan understands that it's God and God alone who sets you free, not some idea of good that you might develop while you're living here in this world. In fact, the ideas of good only serve to confuse us and to distract us from the ultimate means of salvation, the ultimate way of salvation, which is Jesus and Jesus alone. And so John is looking at the simplicity of the message of what Jesus is because of what Jesus has done for you by the extravagance of his grace. And he's saying to us, look, don't let go of this message because of the temptation in your life is always going to be to gravitate towards other things and try to add those things to this message of Jesus. Don't do that. Just live by his spirit. Know that the hope of your heart is just to simply rest in the goodness of what Jesus has done and what he does for you. I mean, rather than picture Satan like one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, recognize that Satan comes deceiving us as an angel of light. And so testing the spirits is so important for this reason. This is, the, this is one way of saying that truth matters, especially when you're on the receiving end of a lie. You're going to want to know where the truth really is. Because if Satan can just twist the truth a little bit, he can bring destruction to your soul, and he doesn't start out with you with steal, kill, destroy, steal, kill, destroy. He starts out with a lie, and he lets the destruction just happen. So how do you test the spirits? How do you do it? Well, if you look at verse 1, I think people come to this verse, and sometimes they, they, they react a couple different ways. You, you either kind of go into fight or flight mode here because it says talks about the Antichrist and all this stuff, and it's like, I don't know about this. Well, flight mode is where you just kind of get paranoid, right? And I don't want you to look at this verse and be paranoid. I don't want you to look at this verse like me like, oh my gosh, your spirit's everywhere. If you freak out about it, verses four through six are for you. And we're going to read those here in a minute. But one of, the, one of the greatest frustrations, I think, in Christian ministry is seeing people lost because they really don't know how to test the spirits. And the reason why we don't know how to test the spirits is because we don't really know what truth is or what the truth is. We assume that there's a lot of truths out there because we've been lied to. That's quite frankly, what's happened. We've been lied to in our spiritual lives. 
And on the other hand, it's just as frustrating, I think, to see people in the church become heresy hunters. I mean, I, I even have done this myself a little bit, and it's kind of arrogant, right? We're critics sometimes where we we look at opportunities to just blast heretics, and we, we kind of find it as our old mission and purpose to do that, to seek and destroy anyone that doesn't agree with Jesus and just annihilate them. And, and I think John actually gives us a better example here that God doesn't want us to do that either. God doesn't call us to be critical, but he, he rather calls us, think about this, he calls us, I think this verse calls us to think critically. I think that's what John is wanting us to do. Think critically, Christians. Think critically. Does that make sense? Don't just be critical, but think critically. It's important because truth sets us free. And I want to encourage us to see truth truth as important and to show people truth and what truth is. And I want us to be discerning and humble and understanding that I you know that Christ wants to set them free and the way he does that is in is in truth that is given through love. So how do you test the spirits? This idea of test means to try, put it like put it on trial, examine it to to prove them. How do we prove these spirits, right? How do you examine that spirits are true or not? Well, the question that we need to answer here is this. I think it just begs the question, what's the standard? There needs to be a standard by which we can measure something so that you see whether or not it's true. Like if you've ever taken a test in your life, go back to grade school, right? You sat down, you had a test. You turned your test in, turned your test into the teacher, and the teacher's got an answer sheet. Well, that answer sheet has, has all the right answers, does it not? I mean, yeah, I mean, teachers are smart. Got all the right answers on the answer sheet. And so what happens is that answer sheet then becomes the standard to determine, do you get an A or do you flunk the class? To determine how many answers you got right and how many answers you got wrong. So there is a standard, and you must be graded according to that standard. If you have an answer that's different than the standard, then guess what? You're wrong. You're wrong. You can only be right if, you, if your answer aligns with the standard. We don't understand that in today's society. What is the standard to determine if something is true or not. I mean, this is a really, really unfortunate part of our culture and our society. In our country, we have taught ourselves that humanity is the highest standard of life. And so what happens then is we base everything regarding what is true and what is not true. We base everything on your personal experience. And consequently, what happens is then you become the litmus test for truth. Well, that means somebody else over here's experience becomes the litmus test for truth. And somebody over there's experience becomes a litmus test for truth. And then we don't know what truth is because if, if truth is just whatever you've experienced, that's confusing. It's like the phrase that I believe Oprah Winfrey actually came up with, but now everyone just uses it, where she would ask the question of a guest, like she would say, what is your truth? Tell us your truth, right? Now, honestly, that question doesn't even make logical sense. Like academic people, smart people will, will say that, and it doesn't make logical sense. I mean, the, the question that makes sense is, what is your experience? What is your perspective? Tell us about your experience. Because in all honesty, you are not the determiner of truth. The truth is what, is what actually happened, right? If you have an experience, 
you have a perspective of how that experience took place, but the truth of that experience is what actually happened. So that means truth is bigger than you. And that's hard for people to take today, right? Truth existed long before you existed and truth's going to continue to exist after you're gone. Truth is so much bigger. You aren't the standard for what determines truth. In any given circumstances, there isn't your truth and my truth and that person's truth and their truth over there and our truth. There, all there is, is your experience and my experience. And then somewhere else is the truth, what actually is taking place. And the way I interpret my experience may or may not align with the truth but I don't get to establish that it's truth because it's mine. <laughs> you can experience truth, but you'll never establish it. It's, 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 I don't know. It's, it's one of the most, it's one of the weirdest miscommunicated things. It's one of the weirdest misunderstandings in our culture today, I think. And so I would say that that way of thinking then has a lot of good people. I mean, people who are, you know, kind people believing a lot of things really sincerely, but they're sincerely wrong. Because we're just, if you're constantly looking within yourself for the source of truth, well, there are spirits that can deceive you and are deceiving you. So how do you know if you're being deceived? Right? I mean, how does someone know if they're being deceived? There's got to be a standard, right? I mean, for example, I could take two very different people. There are two types of people that I, I take people that I know and love, okay, in my life, I relationships with, but I would disagree with in terms of what they believe. So over here I have a Hindu friend, and over here I have a Muslim friend. Both of them make a proclamation about God. Both are very different proclamations about God. One of them can say, I had this wonderful experience in my life, and this is my truth. But they both can't be right because they're both teaching about a different God. Now, they both can be wrong, but they both can't be right. Okay, that, that's, that's not possible. It just isn't. I know, that, I know you're told that everybody can be right, but it just isn't possible. It doesn't make logical, rational sense. And we're supposed to trust logical and rational thinking, but for some reason, everybody can be right. And that doesn't, that doesn't compute for me. That doesn't compute. It shouldn't compute for anybody. Okay. So when you have two people with complete, two different completely views saying, I believe this is true. And I believe this is true. This has been my experience and my personal experience. And therefore it's true. There has to be some other standard, right? There has to be, how do you determine what's right and what's wrong? We can't just say both are true. There has to be a standard of truth. There has to be an answer sheet because they both can't be right. Basic logic says they both can't be right because they're teaching about two different gods. So the standard to determine which one is true is not found within themselves or within their own belief. The standard has to be found outside of them. There's got to be a place that you can come to an answer sheet that you can hold up and examine that's outside of us that we can look at together and say, look, these guys are both making a proclamation. One of them's got to be wrong. Maybe both are wrong. I don't know, but who's right? Who, who's right and who's wrong? I mean, you can still love them. Why? Right? still love them dearly. You can love someone in their incorrectness, but, you, but they can't both be true. 
the standard of truth isn't found within us. Now, I hope that everyone enjoys their journey with the Lord. I hope you enjoy your experiences, but the standard of truth is never going to be found within your own experience. It's found somewhere else, and your own experience may or may not align with what the actual truth is. So, using yourself as a basis for truth, uh, well, here's how scary it can get. When you start to use humanity as the basis for determining what's right and what's wrong, eventually what happens is you get to a place where we are today, I believe, where might makes right, where it's not about what's true anymore, but it's about whoever screams the loudest, whoever fights the hardest, whoever wins the battle, it has nothing to do with actual truth. Truth's out there, but that's that gets lost in the screaming and shouting. And you can believe something with all your might, but just because you believe it, doesn't make it true. There has to be a basis for truth that exists outside of my personal beliefs. And yes, I'm speaking to Christians as well. I I talked about Hindu, Muslim. I'm speaking to Christians as well. And sometimes my personal beliefs do intersect with what is true, hopefully more often than not. So how do we determine it? Let's, we need to get down to the nitty gritty here. Okay. How do we determine it? The standard of truth is outside of you and me. What can we look at to determine what is true? Well, John tells us, 1 John 4, verse 2, this is what he says. By this, you know the Spirit of God. So you want to test the spirits, okay? Here's where you can find the Spirit of God, the Spirit that you want to pursue. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, so it could just be a lot of different teachings. It's Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. So what John is saying is, look, the foundational standard for Christianity, the standard that's out there, it's not just in whatever you made up, the standard is built on Jesus. Jesus Christ, who really came in the flesh, we saw him, The apostles say, John being the last of the living apostles, I saw him. He was my friend. I walked with him. I saw him die. I saw him be buried. I saw him after he resurrected. I saw him ascend to heaven. I heard what he taught. He is the Messiah. Everything in his life aligns uh, with the the prophecies that that were told to us as Jewish people thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago, passed down from generation to generation to us. This man, Jesus, is the one that they say is the Messiah. It He is the standard for truth. It is him. And that's why we call ourselves Christians. That's what Christianity is. We, we can examine Jesus. We can look at Jesus. We can see, does Jesus really, is he really who he claims to be? The standard is not us. The standard is Jesus. If you don't believe, John says, if you don't believe that Jesus came as the Messiah, then you're undermining what Jesus did. So the answer sheet is Jesus. The answer sheet is Jesus. Does your belief align with what Jesus says is truth? The identity of Jesus. Jesus himself said it like this, John 14, 6. I am the way, I am the what? The truth, and I am the life. Jesus tells us that he is the way to pursue, that he is the truth itself. He is life itself. It's not just that he gives life. 
It's that he is the sustainer, the upholder of life. I mean, what kind of person calls themselves the truth anyway? I am the truth, right? What kind of man calls himself the truth? Unless he's just more than a man. So what John is establishing for us is that Jesus is the standard. When we think about that question, who is Jesus, right? Who is Jesus? Someone might say, well, who is Jesus to be the standard? It's the most important question you could ever have someone ask you in Christianity because this is everything that you're believing in. It's what you rest your life on. It's where your hope is that Jesus is the creator of God who made everything physical and spiritual, part of the triunity of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We rebelled against Jesus in our sin, but he pursued us. He was born of a virgin. He came in the flesh. He died on the cross. He resurrected on the third day. And he said, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. Jesus today in his resurrection is ruling at the right hand of the Father, promises us in that in his in his ruling and in his reigning, he will one day return for us. That, that is the clarity of Christ that we rest in that is given to us in his word that we hold up as the litmus test, the answer sheet for what someone is proclaiming or not. John wants us to rest in the identity and in the standard of Jesus. And then he builds from there. And he I told you I'd read verses four through six and then verse six, and I'll go ahead and do that now. He says this in verses, I'll just read verse six. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Jude, in Jude 3, the book of Jude only has one chapter, so in verse 3 of the book of Jude, it says this. It says, the faith, not your faith, the faith, was once for all handed down to the saints. So it's saying that, what is our faith? What is our faith? It's concluded and wrapped up in the identity of Jesus. That's what your faith is. Everyone, everyone's faith must be put there because that is the litmus test for truth. There's no more that needs to be added to Scripture. There's no more that needs to be figured out. John said, I, we saw him, and this is it. Everything that we believe and live in is in Christ. And so the faith that has been handed to us is founded in Jesus. That's why John was able to say in this passage, look, you need to listen to what we've taught Listen to what we've taught. We were there, John says. It's, 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 you know, listen to the apostles' teaching. We were there. We saw him. We rest in this. Jesus is the standard when we test the spirits. When you test the spirits, they must be tested against the Jesus and the truth of who Jesus is. That's the only way to know for sure that you're testing appropriately. Jesus prayed for you, us, all of us in the church. And how did he pray for us in John 17? He said, sanctify them in, your, in the truth, and your word, God, is truth. So the standard for understanding Jesus is the word of God. What John is saying in this for us is that to examine the spirits is to look at the identity of Jesus and the truth which he proclaimed about himself in God's word, and then you'll know whether or not what you're being taught, what you're listening to, when you have conversations about what people think, who people think God is, whether or not the spirit that you're hearing is of God or not. And he says this back in verse five, they're from the world, talking about people who don't follow Jesus. They're from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. 
So don't be shocked when the world disagrees with you. In fact, if you follow Jesus, these are the same people that murdered Jesus. You're following a guy who was murdered, and all of his immediate followers were murdered. And so the world doesn't like you for following Jesus. So don't be shocked by that. The world operates by a different agenda, always has and always will. But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. John says, for we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God doesn't listen to us. They listen to the world. By this, we know that the spirit of truth, and we know by this, we also know the spirit of error. By what? By Jesus, by the identity of Jesus that we see in his word. Christianity is about believing in the truth of Jesus. That's what Christianity is about. It's about trusting in the truth of Jesus. It's about resting in the foundation of the identity of Jesus. That's what it's about. In seeing his love as he pursues our lives and giving our heart back to him, our king who's given his heart for you, and then responding to him by loving others around you because that's who Jesus loves. Christianity, when we summarize it very simply, Christianity is this, love God, love others. And as you walk in his spirit, you're free from the law. But in that spirit, the Bible tells us there is love, there's joy, there's peace, there's patience, there's kindness. When you surrender your life to the goodness of this God, you allow the Lord to work through you. And in working through you, he impacts hearts throughout this world, the hearts of others. I want to pray, and then we're going to conclude our time together with uh, another song or two. You want to just do stand on your love, or you want to go to the... Let's do both. That's why we're here. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for giving us an answer sheet. I know it seems awfully simplistic to say it that way, but... I hope that it helps people to understand a little better um, that there has to be a standard. There just has to be. There has to be a standard. And the history of what we believe, the history of where we put our faith goes back. It's been recorded. It's been tested from generation to generation and still lives on today because your spirit is alive and well in all of those who put faith in the one who said that he is, is, in his identity, is what truth is. The one who said he is truth, and that is Jesus. Lord, if anyone has been confused who's come to, to listen and join us, join with us today, may they understand that there's a way for your confusion to be remedied, and that is to go to the source of truth. There is a truth that's older than the ages. There is a truth that lives on today because you can hold the Word of God in your hands and you can read it, which then it goes into your mind and your heart, and you can embrace Jesus and who He is, and you begin to understand. And it just becomes a lot easier to be able to see and know when the Spirit that is speaking to you is of Christ or isn't. I see and hear a lot of spirits today and a lot of loud voices drowning out the true voice, the voice of Christ. May we stand confidently assured 
in the word of Christ and the identity of Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.